good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well. Now, as I said in my last episode, we had been trying to fix all of society's ills, and I wanted to do something a little bit lighter for this episode. So we're going to talk about me, or specifically the area of the country that I'm from. I chose the name Fresh Frozen Southerner because despite what most of the country thinks, I'm not ashamed of being Southern. I'm actually quite proud of where I grew up. But a lot of the country views Southerners as somehow less of a person. You're tainted if you're from the South. I think a lot of that is left over from the Civil War. I always wondered how different things would be if Abraham Lincoln had not been assassinated. Lincoln's goal for the re reunification of the country was for it to be as amicable as possible. And after his assassination, Johnson and definitely Ulysses S. Grant, who was elected after Johnson finished Lincoln's term, they definitely had a bit more of a bend toward retribution. And we're still feeling the effects that 150 years later. But I found something out about 15 years ago. I had always thought of myself as Southern, and everyone that grew up in the area that I did always thought of themselves as Southern. But about 15 years ago, my in-laws moved to North Carolina. They live in the coastal region. And when they moved down there, I found out that the people down east don't think of me as Southern. I'm hill folk to them. Now, that's not meant necessarily to be derogatory, Certainly, there's no animosity to it the way the rest of the country thinks of us. But we're sort of the distant cousin that may or may not show up at the family reunion. Certainly, if they do show up, they would be welcome to be there, but you're not going to miss them if they don't show up. So even to quote-unquote proper Southerners, I'm just a hillbilly. And a lot of people are upset by that term. A lot of people back home don't like it. It's never bothered me. I was born and I lived the vast majority of my life in the Allegheny Highlands. I have got Scott-Irish ancestors. Most of my family members, or a lot of them, were coal miners. I can put a mark beside every item on the Are You a Hillbilly checklist. So call me a hillbilly if you like. That's what I am. But the stereotypical image of the hillbilly that, that springs to everybody's mind when they hear that word the barefoot guy wearing bib overalls and no shirt with a big flowing beard sitting on the front porch of his cabin with a rifle across his lap. That stereotypical image is actually a media construct. When the Hatfield and McCoy feud was going on, that was national news. Papers all across the country were running these very sensationalized stories about what was going on and what people's lives were like there. And apparently, newspapers and reality and truth have never been on very good speaking terms because they just made up a bunch of stuff, but that has stuck in the American conscious of what it's like in Appalachia. But I've got some news for all those people who look down their nose at Southerners, and especially us hillbillies in Appalachia, which I do get a kick out of the fact that the group that does the most screaming and yelling about how hurtful stereotypes are sure have a bunch of stereotypes that they like to slap on people as soon as they get half a chance. And I actually, I come across a term for people like that. Hang on, I wrote it down. Oh, here it is. Hypocrites. That's what you call people like that. Hypocrites. But here's the thing. Hillbillies are not a part of the American culture. You are American 
because of hillbillies. And I want to take you back to the start of the Revolutionary War. When we declared our independence from Britain, almost nobody expected us to actually be able to defeat the mightiest empire on the planet. Now, among the colonists, you might have had a few hardcore nut jobs that thought we had a chance to to defeat the British. Most people, the Founding Fathers included, did not believe for a moment that we were going to win that war. The point of the Declaration was to try to get some leverage to win some concessions from the Crown. And if there was going to be any fighting, it would be short-lived and it would just serve to bring everybody to the negotiation table. Britain had the largest standing army in the world at the time. They had far and away the strongest navy, and probably more importantly than either of those things, they had plenty of money to hire Hessian mercenary units to come fight for them. Now, actually, one of my ancestors was a Hessian mercenary. Uh, He was pressed into service into a military unit sent over to fight the colonists. At some point, he was captured. He spent the remainder of the war in a POW camp in the Shenandoah Valley, which, no matter what John Denver tries to tell you, that is not in West Virginia. The Shenandoah Valley is in Central Virginia. And after the war, he stayed in America. Now, the Continental Congress offered enemy combatants the option of either returning to their own country, or if they would stay and take an oath of citizenship, they were giving them land to start a farm. So that's probably why he stayed. I don't know if he just didn't want to go back to Germany, but whatever reason, he stayed after the war. But Britain had every advantage. America did not have a standing army. Um, They did have the militia, which is not what we think of when we say that word. Um, We think of some doomsday preppers who get together on a Saturday evening and plan for the invasion that they expect will show up on Tuesday. In colonial times, the militia was any able-bodied man between the age of 18 and 60. And if you fell into that category, you were expected, if called upon, to take up arms and fight. Basically, militia sort of meant like the reserves in the army now. Um, You're a part of the army but you're not a full-time soldier. You have a job, you have a home, you have a family, but if you're ordered into service, you're expected to show up as soon as possible. America had no Navy, and I don't mean a small Navy. They basically had no Navy. At the time, British troops served a security function, and their Navy defended the colonist borders, and America had no need for a Navy. We didn't even really have any ships that could be converted to naval warfare. Really, the only advantage that the colonies had, I've read a lot that they said that the knowledge of the terrain was an advantage, but there were a lot of loyalists that were helping the British Army in the colonies, so I don't see how that was a very big advantage. Really, the only advantage the colonies had was that Britain was in the midst of one of their many wars with France, and so they were dividing their attention between two different wars on different sides of the planet. Even General Washington stated, To depend on militia is assuredly resting on a broken staff. So that gives you a little insight on how the leader of the army felt about their chances. Like I say, the only expectation was that we buy some time and get a little leverage for the negotiators. 
when open conflict broke out, the militia actually performed better than expected. The militia retreated at Lexington, which everyone will remember from civics class, that was the opening skirmish of the war. Now, that did buy a little bit of time. By the time the British reached the town of Concord, enough reinforcements have arrived that they were able to stall the British advance. And the Continental Army won several battles. They won defensive battles at Bunker Hill, which is right outside of Boston, and Fort Ticonderoga. George Washington's attack on Trenton, New Jersey, was tactically brilliant. He attacked the day after Christmas. And his crossing the river, he came at them from a direction that they did not expect to be attacked on a day that they did not expect to be attacked. And on a day where all of the soldiers there were pretty hungover from partying all Christmas long, uh, actually, absolutely textbook attack the enemy where they're not expecting it when they don't expect it. But the British Army won a lot of battles as well. And even though the Continental Army was holding its own, it was really just a matter of time if anything didn't change. The colonies were very agrarian at this time. They did not have a lot of manufacturing. They depended on trade from other countries to get a lot of the supplies that they needed. And the British Navy was able to blockade nearly all of our ports with ease. We could not fight them off at all. As I said, we had no Navy. But the British was really not expecting the level of resistance that they met in the New England colonies. So in the fall of 1778, they shifted their focus. They decided that they would go after the southern colonies. The southern colonies did not have anywhere near the population that New England had, and they assumed that they would be able to very easily take control of Georgia and North and South Carolina, and then it would open up a southern front for the rest of the colonies so that the British attacked New England from the sea while moving troops up out of the south, and they would basically have had the colonies fighting the war on two different fronts. So the British Army sent troops into the southern colonies under the command of General George Cornwallis, and he very quickly and very efficiently took control of Georgia, North Carolina, and South Carolina, and destroyed three different continental armies in the process. One of these armies was led by Colonel Charles McDowell. After his troops were routed, he fled to the west into the mountains of North Carolina. Basically, the British Army had the colonies exactly where they wanted to have them. They expected this to bring a very swift end to the revolution. But at this point, a new faction entered the stage. And let me take just a moment to give you a little bit of a geology and local history lesson. The area that we're talking about from this point on is, at the time, it was all a part of Virginia, except a little bit was in North Carolina. The colony of Virginia was originally very, very large. Talking about areas modern-day southwestern end of Virginia, West Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky, that little area where all those states meet. Uh, These were referred to as the Overmountain Settlements. Uh, basically, that just means that they're settlements that were over the mountain. There had been a treaty with the Shawnee and Cherokee Indians by the British that the colonies would not go past what is called the Allegheny Front. And the Allegheny Front is basically a wall that runs for hundreds of miles along the eastern edge of the Appalachian Mountains. 
Um, I don't know where it begins and where it ends. Just from personal experience, I can tell you that it runs at least from the western tip of North Carolina up to northern Virginia. And there's no gradually getting higher and higher until you're in the mountains, you're in the lowlands. And then there is a very steep slope that goes up over a thousand feet. And then you're into the mountains. And if you're standing at the bottom and looking at it, you can really understand why very few people wanted to bother moving any further west because it would be extremely difficult to get up there and there were no roads to get a wagon. You either went on horse or foot. But a lot of these settlements, they were not recognized by the British Crown because it was in violation of the treaty, but there were a lot of settlements where people had leased or outright purchased land from the Cherokee and the Shawnee Indians. There was not a large population of settlers in the area, but there were several settlements that had sprung up in the Allegheny Highlands by this time, and the people that lived there were overwhelmingly anti-British, particularly the fact that the British Army had tried to stir up trouble with the Cherokee and Shawnee Indians by promising them that if they would push the settlers out of that area, Britain would grant them their lands back. Most of the action that they had seen up to that point had either been fighting Indians that were trying to attack the settlements, or they had been involved in a few skirmishes, mostly against British loyalists, not army regulars up to that point. But that was about to change. If you'll remember, I told you that Colonel Charles McDowell had fled into the mountains of North Carolina. General Cornwallis sent a detachment of around 1,200 soldiers into the mountain to chase down Charles McDowell and the remnants of his army. They were under the command of a Major Patrick Ferguson. Now, one of the first things that Major Ferguson did was he pardoned one of the revolutionary prisoners that they had and sent him to the Overmountain settlements with a message. And his message was fairly simple. He told the leaders of that community that if you do not lay down your arms, I will march my army over the mountains, I will hang your leaders, and I will lay waste to the country with fire and sword. As you can imagine, this did not go over very well. The Overmountain settlements were not pro-British to begin with, and they had a lot of resentment toward the British for stirring up trouble with the Cherokee Indians. They had lived in that area for a long time at that point and had gotten along. So the leader of the Overwatch settlements decided that it's time to raise an army to come down out of the mountains and actually join in the fight. About 240 Tennesseans, led by a man named Isaac Shelby, and about 400 Virginians, led by William Campbell, started to march southeast, and they were going to meet up with the remnants of Colonel McDowell's army. And they picked up more and more mountain men along the way. I think by the time they met up with Colonel McDowell, they had about a 1,000 men. That doesn't sound like a lot in modern terms, but you got to remember... Major Ferguson only had about 1,200 men. Uh, That's actually a pretty balanced fight, and that's about what you'd expect to see on the battlefield at the time. So the mountain men started the long march south. Uh, For the Virginians, it was about 330 miles. Now, the men from Virginia, that is the area that I'm from. Those are my people. But they caught up to Major Ferguson's army just below the North Carolina border. Now, Major Ferguson knew that there was a sizable militia unit in the area. He was in the process of trying to draw back closer to the main British army. 
But once the Overmountain Settlement Army was close enough to him, he decided that he needed to dig into a defensive position, and he chose an area called King's Mountain, which gave them the high ground, had very steep slopes. It would be hard for the militia to advance up the hill. When the Overwatch Settlement Militia reached King's Mountain, they set up on three sides of the hill. Isaac Shelby and the Tennesseans were on the north flank, and William Campbell and the Virginians were on the southern flank. A lot of the North Carolinians were set up in the center. They were to act as reserve or to be ready to exploit any breaches in the British line that may be, may be broken through. Now, the battle began on October the 7th, 1780. The battle lasted a little longer than one hour. As I said, the hills of King Mountain are steep, and it did give the Overmountain militia a little difficulty up. But the marksmanship of the mountain men absolutely decimated the British defenses. In the one hour plus, I said 68 minutes, but that's eyewitness accounts, who knows. The Overwatch militia killed or wounded 200 of the British soldiers. That's about 20% of the soldiers that they had, which is, that doesn't sound like a lot. In actual battle terms, that is crazy. You don't sustain, even long drawn-out conflicts, you don't expect to sustain a casualty rate of 20%. But the battle ended when Major Ferguson, apparently inspecting the lines, stepped out of cover and according to eyewitnesses, he was hit with multiple shots almost simultaneously. Now, the death of Major Ferguson has some tactical ramifications for the rest of the war. I'll get to those in just a moment. But after Major Ferguson was killed, the rest of the British Army surrendered at that point. Now, the reason that this battle ended so quickly is due to a couple of factors. Number one, uh, the British Army regulars were armed with the Brown Bess musket, uh, basically the same rifle the British Army had been using for about 100 years at that point. It's a smooth bore, fired a round ball, very inaccurate. Most of the mountain men were armed with the Kentucky Long Rifle, and now it's called the Kentucky Long Rifle. It was actually developed in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, but much, much more accurate weapon. And it was in the hands of people that had been hunting and shooting their entire lives. And that makes a huge difference. These men were incredible marksmen. Probably the worst shot among them could outshoot the best British regular. Another advantage that these men had is they did grow up in the woods. They grew up learning how to hunt from the Cherokee and the Shawnee Indians. They knew how to use cover. They knew how to use the terrain to mask their movements. And probably every last one of them was not dressed in a regular army uniform. They were wearing the buckskins that they wore from home, that they hunted in. Now, when you look at a set of buckskins, that does not look like what we would think of as camouflage. But if you look at modern camouflage, like the the woodland camo pattern that the U.S. Army used for decades, for some reason, when you're looking at that, that registers as green in your brain. But if you really took one of those BDU shirts and looked at it, there's very little green in that. It is mostly black, brown, and tan. 
and a dull brown set of buckskins in the woods, that blends in extremely well. And the fringe that's always on the buckskins, that's not just an aesthetic choice. That helps break up your outline. It actually adds to the camouflage. And also, if you're in the woods and there's a breeze, everything's moving a little bit in the wind. The twigs, the low brush, the branches in the trees, everything's moving. And it doesn't seem like having fringe blowing in the breeze would help your camouflage. And if you were just standing in the middle of a parking lot, it would make you stand out more. But if you're in a situation where everything in the background's moving, being perfectly still makes you stand out more than having something moving with the breeze. So you had men who were expert marksmen, expert at using cover, and very well camouflaged. And they were able to defeat British regulars in a shockingly short amount of time. Once General Cornwallis realized that Major Ferguson's army was either dead or captured, he realized his western flank was completely exposed, and the only thing that was to his west was a rather large and obviously extremely capable militia unit. This caused him to pull back to Charleston, South Carolina, opened up most of the territory that the British had taken over, and it totally changed the colonists' outlook on the war. Thomas Jefferson is quoted as saying, it was the turn of the tide of success. Thomas Jefferson was one of the most eloquent speakers in the history of this country. You may be in the vernacular of the time that sounded a little bit better. That did not age well. That sounds clunky. Maybe that's why you don't hear that quote very often. But he is absolutely right in what he said, because the Battle of Kings Mountain completely changed the complexion of the Revolutionary War. The tactics that the mountain men used in the battle were very quickly adopted into the rest of the Continental Army. A lot of the Overwatch settlement militia got folded into other units in the Continental Army, and one of the more famous ones was Morgan's Riflemen, but they were used as sharpshooters and snipers. And I mentioned that the death of Major Ferguson had a big impact on the rest of the war. Shooting a commanding officer is not something that was normally done on the battlefield at this time. The commanding officers in these battles were generally considered a non-target. And you've got to remember, this is a time where the prevailing tactic was to line up men facing each other and have them fire musket volleys at each other. Now, as you can imagine, a soldier had to be extremely well-disciplined to stand there and let a hundred other men 50 yards away shoot at him, even knowing that with the musket, it was a 50-50 chance that nobody was going to get hit. But what was discovered is that as well-disciplined as those troops were, without their commanding officers there giving them orders, they would fold up almost immediately. So the role of the marksmen from the mountains with their Kentucky long rifles became to pick off the commanding officers on the field. The British Army was not very happy with this. That was simply not the way a proper gentleman conducted himself on the field of battle, but it proved to be a brutally successful tactic for the Continental Army. And these increased successes on the battlefield directly led to France joining us as an ally in the war which was the final nail in the coffin for the British and the American colonies. 
So, ladies and gentlemen, hillbillies have been viewed with disdain. We have been viewed as jokes, as embarrassments. But this country owes its very existence to the hillbilly. And I hope after today, you'll look at us a little bit differently. All right, guys, that's all I've got today. I really enjoyed this topic for obvious reasons. It's it's my history, not me personally, but you know what I'm saying. All right, guys, I had fun. I hope you did, too. If you're enjoying the show, please leave me a like and a positive review. Share it with your friends. And if you'd like to send me a comment, you can send me an email at freshfrozensoutherner at gmail.com. I will talk to you very soon, and I hope you have a good weekend. Thank you very much.